you, Zach. How's everyone doing today? Glad to be here? Awesome. Well, I uh, am glad to be here too. Uh, I am, like Zach said, I am the young adult pastor here at Grace. And um, just a, a short plug for our young adult ministry every Sunday night, so including tonight, we meet in this room, 730. Uh, we have music, a message, and always have some food afterwards to hang out. So if maybe you go to Heidelberg or Tiffin or you're um, in college or in your 20s, come check us out, 730 tonight, young adult. Uh, we would love to have you here. And last week, Pastor AJ uh, concluded our series, Redacted, and we are kind of gearing up for the fall, and so next week we'll be starting a new series called Family Hacks, and obviously focused on the family, on parenting, marriage, and um, something um, that hopefully is beneficial for all of us, uh, no matter who's in the room. But this week is uh, kind of that transition week, so it's a standalone, one-off, and uh, before we get to what we're talking about, I want to ask you one question uh, that I want you to internalize, think about uh, as we are going through uh, this passage today. What is something, what is the best thing that can happen to you and those around you? Like, honestly, think about it. What is something that if it happened in your life, in your world, that you would find the most joy from, that you would be able to celebrate more than anything, that would make you happier? that it would just make your life that much better, okay? And for a lot of us, it's probably different. Maybe for some, we would enjoy some, uh, some change in occupational scenery. Like, hey, don't love my job. I would want another one. I want a career. Don't, you know, don't want to be here long term. Or maybe it's a new home. And if I could just move into that new home, if our family could be here, that would solve a lot of problems. Or uh, maybe it's a relationship being fixed, it's like, yeah, I, with my family member, with my friend, it's just been um, distant. And if I could just reconcile with them, if I could fix that, man, that would bring me the most joy. Or maybe some of us are a little simpler. Eh, the lottery would be fine, okay? Maybe it's uh, just, hey, my financials were, were set, wouldn't have to worry, that would bring me the most joy, okay? A lot of different things. But what I want us to look at this morning the Bible talks about something that should bring us more joy than anything else. And it should bring us joy because it brings God joy. And to figure that out, we need to understand what God is like in the first place. Because all of us walk into the room this morning with different ideas of who God actually is. Some of us are right that we pull them from Scripture. Some of us, not so much. We may believe that God, uh, yeah, he's creator, he's powerful, but he's not personal. He's not involved in my life or he really doesn't care. Or maybe we just view God as this heavenly sheriff that's kind of patrolling the world and like, okay, if you do bad, you're punished. If you do good, I'll reward you. Neither of those are right. But all of us have an idea of who God is. And no matter what your opinion of God is, how you think of him will directly impact your life. Your view of God will change how you live. And who better to tell us about who God is and what he's actually like than the person who has spent the most time with God, and that's Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, Luke chapter 15 is where we are going to be. And here we see an entire chapter of Jesus telling us, hey, this is what our heavenly Father is like. And so we're going to jump right into it. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, and we're going to read the majority of the chapter uh, here this morning. It says, all the tax collectors and sinners 
were approaching to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus is in his ministry. He's traveling. He's preaching. He's healing. He's doing all these things, meeting a bunch of new people. And often where he went, there were crowds following him. And so this crowd consisted of, the Bible says, tax collectors and sinners. Now we hear the word sinner, and we don't use it the same way um, that people 2,000 years ago did. If someone was classified as a sinner, uh, it's not like today where we get, hey, we're all sinners. We all fall short of God's standard. None of us are perfect. They use sinner as a particular class of people who were especially immoral, whether it was their job or what they did for a living or whatever the case may be, they were seen as not as good or not as worthy as everybody else. So they were bottom tier. And then you have the tax collectors, and we, obviously it's in the name, we get what they do, but these were people who purchased the right from Rome to collect taxes. And so they were seen as dishonest, greedy people who were able to abuse the system for their own wealth, their own benefit. And so nobody liked tax collectors, nobody. They were no one's favorite type of person. And we see, it says the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. The Pharisees uh, were just extremely religious people who thought that they could be right with God based off what they did. And so they did all these religious things and they appeared holier and better than everybody else, but they weren't. And they weren't actually saved. They weren't on good terms with God. But what's funny, and you see this all throughout the Gospels, all throughout Jesus' ministry, the people that Jesus connected with the most wasn't the super religious people. The people that connected with Jesus were the, the marginalized, the worst society had to offer, so to speak. It was the people that they weren't accepted, that they weren't uh, able to do life as normal because people looked down on them. That's who Jesus connected with. It's because they felt loved, they felt cared for. And so the Pharisees, these extremely religious people, we're looking at Jesus going, why is he hanging around these ungodly people? And they were baffled by that. And the reason they questioned was because they misunderstood something about God. And so Jesus, understanding this tension, goes on in the rest of the chapter and tells three parables. And parables are just, uh, they're simply short stories that Jesus used as teaching point, kind of as, as an illustration uh, to make a point about who God is or about um, God's kingdom. So he told three stories about what God is like. Verse 3, we have the first one. So he told them this parable. What man among you, so he's just trying to relate. He said, hey, wouldn't you guys do the same thing? What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? So they're trying to relate, or Jesus is trying to relate to them. Being a shepherd was pretty common, and it was common for them to have 100, maybe even 200 sheep. But he's saying, hey, if you're a shepherd, you have 99 sheep that are safe. Wouldn't you shift your attention from what is secure to what is lost? Wouldn't you leave the 99 to go look for the one? And all of us do the same thing today. I don't know about you guys, but me, I lose everything. And so I'm constantly looking for my keys, wallet, pen, phone, doesn't matter. Uh, but when we lose something, we do the same thing. Okay, if you lose your, your car keys 
and you're looking all over the house, you can't find them. Oh, where did I put those things? They're not in my pocket. They're not under the couch. They're not on the counter. Where are they? Okay. You know what you don't do? Oh, yeah, I lost my keys, but I'm going to stop looking because at least I have my car. <laughs> like, no. You kind of need your keys, right? Or let's say you're out in public, parents, and uh, you're like, man, I can't find my kid. I don't know where they went. I got two more. It's fine. <laughs> we don't do that, right? Because you shift your attention, at least I hope you don't do that. Um, you shift your attention from what's secure to what's lost. You focus on finding what is lost. And so Jesus is explaining this, and he goes on further in verse 5. He says, when he has found it, when the shepherd has found the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, calls his friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And then in verse 7, he tells us what this parable of the lost sheep is referring to. He says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And repents just means to turn away from your sin, to turn away from sin and turn towards God. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Jesus is saying, look, you want to know what heaven is excited about, what heaven celebrates? Heaven is more concerned with people who are far from God, humbly turning to him, than people who appear religious and think they're fine. That 99 self-righteous people who follow God's rituals and rules, they go to church, they give, they pray, they read their Bible, those people who are basing off their good works to get into heaven, that doesn't bring joy to God. But one sinner, one person confessing their sin and turning to God is cause for celebration. And so God is concerned with those who will admit that they are lost and turn to him. And the Pharisees, the religious people, they didn't do this. Why? It's because they never acknowledged that they were lost in the first place. But we, if you've been coming to Grace for any amount of time, we talk about this uh, quite frequently because we understand that the gospel is necessary, that we are lost. The Bible says that because of my sin, I deserve eternity apart from God. I don't deserve heaven. I deserve hell. The Bible says that we are all, before trusting in Jesus, we are dead in our sin. The Bible says that we are lost, we're following Satan, we're not doing life God's way. And just like that wandering sheep, we are alone, we are defenseless, we are powerless, we are in need of someone to come save us. And so this parable shows our spiritual condition. But that's the first one. Second parable, second story he tells is not the lost sheep, but the story of the lost coin in verse 8. He says, or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, I found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way, there's joy in the presence of of God's angels over one sinner who repents. And so in the same way, they're celebrating what was lost that is now found. And we read this story and we probably go, oh, well, she lost her coin. What's the big deal? At the very least, this coin, one coin, represented a day's wages. 
So you work for a day, this is what you get. So most likely, these 10 coins are all this woman owned. This is her life savings, 10 coins, 10 days of work that she can show for it. And so if she loses 10% of her money, it's a big deal, right? It's enough to go looking for. And I also read that um, what this could have referred to is not necessarily a coin, but specifically uh, a diamond that a woman, before getting married, she would uh, work and, and, and save up to get these 10 diamonds that she would wear on a chain and, and actually put on her, like, wear as a headdress. And, uh, and it was her dowry, so what she could contribute to the marriage. And just like losing a diamond in your engagement ring, it's a big deal, right? You would probably go looking for that. And just like this woman who lost something valuable, she was going out of her way. She did not stop looking until she found it. God does the same thing searching for sinners, searching and reaching after people who are far from him to find them. And if we think about this parable even more, if you think about, yeah, the, the, the woman was the one searching. The coin, what did the coin do to be found? Nothing, right? Because it's an object. It's not going to move. It's not going to say, hey, I'm here. The woman was doing all of the searching here to find the coin. It shows God is the one who pursues us. God is the one reaching out to those who are lost. And you might be sitting here going, how has God pursued me? Sure doesn't feel like it. How, what has God done to, to show that he cares or uh, he's doing something to reach out? And the Bible gives example after example. But the greatest way that he's done that, he's already done by sending his sons down the cross for our sins. Romans 5 says that even before we knew who Jesus was, while we were sinners, stuck dead in our sin, he sent his son Jesus so that we could be made alive. And not only Jesus, but he's given us his word that we don't have to wonder what God is like. We can read it and know for ourselves. And even the fact that, that you are sitting in this auditorium here this morning is a sign that God is reaching out to you, trying to show and communicate truth to you. And I get that I could probably do a better job of this. I'm not perfect. But God is using me. God is using grace to reach out to you. Because just like what AJ talked about last week, truth is knowable and we can obtain it. And so when this woman finds her coin, just like when the shepherd finds the sheep, it's cause for celebration. What's lost has been found. And what's interesting is here we get a snippet of heaven being excited, celebrating over an earthly event. And even in the same way, we can often tell what somebody values we can tell what somebody cares about by what they celebrate, right? Like, like, I probably don't have to look that far. I can go on your Facebook and see what you share, what you post about, what you celebrate, what, what, what brings you joy, maybe even what gets you upset. Like, it's what you celebrate is often showing what you care about. And that's different for a lot of us, but some of us, maybe the most excited or passionate that we get is based off if Ohio State or Cleveland is winning or losing, like that. That's the part of it, or that's the best part of our week, celebrating. Or for some of us, it's uh, possessions. Maybe it's, yeah, I, I'm so excited about what I bought or I got it on sale. We got this um, new car, new house, whatever the case may be. Or maybe even for a lot of us, because the past five years have really shown this to be true, a lot of us have been more excited and we've celebrated 
who our president is more than anything else in our spiritual life. That we care more and we have shown more passion and excitement and joy based off whether Trump is in or out of office compared to anything about God or his glory. We can tell what we care about by seeing what we celebrate. And what heaven celebrates, what God is joyful about, is lost people. This this shows his heart. He wants to bring lost people back into a relationship with him. That's what he cares about, and that's what he celebrates. And we see that in the first two parables. And again, there's another story that Jesus tells. And this one is probably uh, a lot more familiar with all of us in the room. It's the parable or story of the lost son, or you might know it as the prodigal son. Verse 11 says, Jesus also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So we distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had, traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. And so you got to remember, to the crowd around Jesus listening, they, they are just baffled. Like, well, this is the most disrespectful, offensive thing a son can do. Because he's basically going to his dad and saying, hey, I, I know when you die, like, I get a third of your uh, money, estate, like the inheritance. Can we just go ahead and get that rolling now? Because uh, I basically don't want to live here, don't care about you. I just want what's coming to me. Parents, can you imagine your son or daughter coming to you and saying, hey, I know when your time's up, that life insurance kind of kicks in. You mind if we get that rolling now? Like, I would just love that. How, I don't know how exactly you would respond, but I'm guessing it wouldn't be the best conversation you've ever had, right? It'd be disrespectful because the son here in the story is saying, Lord, I don't care about you. I care about your money. That I don't want to live under your rules. You're holding me back. I want to go have my own freedom. And so that's what he does. The dad doesn't force him. He gives him uh, a third of the inheritance. And so the older brother would get two-thirds. He, the younger one would get a third. Turns it into cash. Says he goes to a foreign country. Starts living it up. He's partying. He's probably the most popular person in town. He's sleeping with a different woman every night. He is living his best life like he has all the money in the world. Until verse 14. It says, after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. So he ran out of money, a famine hits, and the only job that he can find is working for a foreign person who owns a farm, owns some pigs, he's a pig keeper. And again, the crowd here, a a Jewish crowd realizes, oh, if you're a Jew, you're not even supposed to touch pigs, let alone be the pig keeper. So they are just blown away at how this kid's scenario is getting worse and worse and worse because this is the most embarrassing, degrading, disgusting job that you can have. It says that he's so hungry that he wishes to be right alongside the pigs eating with them or having something to eat. But no one would help him out. And so this son has hit rock bottom. And this is where self-reflection starts to kick in. And isn't it interesting and 
often unfortunate, how the lowest moments of our life is when we often have the most clarity, how we realize what's important and what's not, how we often, when tough times come, that's when we have our best perspective. And this is what happens here. Verse 17 says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. Bible says that he came to his senses. He uh, he faced himself, he took a good look in the mirror, realized who he was, what he had done, and he's owning up and saying, okay, I'm starving, not succeeding here, I'm, this is miserable, there's only one place I know to go, and that's home. And so he's already realizing, hey, I have messed up, I know I don't deserve to be a son, I burned that bridge, I, I'm not privileged enough because I have ruined that relationship. With my dad, I've done too many bad things, but maybe he'll at least let me be a hired worker um, for him. So that way I'm not going to starve to death. And he made up his mind to go home. And even before he goes home, he's already rehearsing his apology, his explanation before he gets there, right? And I'm sure all of us have been there to some degree. Uh, maybe we can think back to when we were a kid and we messed up so bad that you already have to plan your explanation before you get like, explain yourself, you know what I mean? Or maybe even, uh, let's say you buy something you shouldn't have, or you mess up, and you know you'll have to tell your husband or wife, like, hey, this is what I did. <laughs> like, it didn't work out, but here's what I was thinking, okay? We've all had to do this. And he knows before he gets home, he's already planning his apology. And so he travels, and he is turning onto the property where his dad lives. And we know that some sort of reunion is happening here. Now, I get most of us probably know how the story ends, but even for us, just thinking practically about how a dad would respond, or even the crowd and what they're thinking the dad is going to do, because the dad is about to have his son come home. The son that basically said, hey, I wish you were dead. I don't care about you. I care about your money. The son that moved away, brought shame and embarrassment to the family, that went broke had the worst possible job, and is only home as a last resort because he's hungry. Most of us would believe that, okay, the dad's going to be pretty angry. The dad's going to be upset. Or at the very least, he's going to uh, want an explanation. He's going to want to know, hey, what were you thinking? But verse 20 tells us what happens. It says, so he got up, went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. It says he ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. He was filled with compassion. Now, remember, these stories aren't just meant for us to figure out how to be better people. Okay, These stories show us what God is like. They give us a snippet of him. And all of us, at one point in our lives, before trusting in Jesus, all of us were that son. We rebelled, we've done wrong, we don't deserve it, but we, 
have ran away from our heavenly father. And some of us have made that decision to trust in Jesus. But there are a lot of us in this room that you are still that younger son. That you are still running from God. And, and we know what that looks like. We understand when we are living a life that doesn't honor him, we're making poor, poor decisions that are wrong. And so we run to things that we know will not satisfy us. We run to broken relationships. We run to alcohol. We run to things that just, an overall life that is not committed to God. And maybe as we're running, some of us are carrying the weight of our past. We're carrying the weight of decisions that we know are wrong, that we know that we regret. And so some of us, maybe we're carrying around bitterness that you've had against somebody for years. Some of us are still carrying the weight of an abortion, of an addiction, of that sin in your life that you feel like, man, I can never tell anybody. But when we stop running and when we turn to God, when we turn to our heavenly Father, you know what he feels for you? It's not anger. It's not resentment. It's not judgment. He feels compassion. That regardless of what your past is, he loves you. And just like the dad in the story, he loves so much that he can't wait for his child to return home. And he sees him from a distance, and he doesn't wait for the son to come up to the house and say, hey, you got some explaining to do. Let's hear it. No, he runs to his kid. And even for an adult uh, man, like being a father, he's probably, um, he has two grown kids, so he's um, an adult. And for an adult guy to run was very undignified. Like, you just didn't do it. You had to hike up your robe, and it just wasn't pretty. So <laughs> they normally didn't do it, but he didn't care. He ran to his son because he was excited, and he loves him. It says that he gave him a great big hug, and he kissed him, and he doesn't care what he had been through. Verse 21, the, the son spoke first, and he began to, to give his spiel, right? Like, his apology that he had already planned. He said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And again, he was getting ready to say, hey, can I have a job? I know I can't be your son, but will you hire me? But the father cuts him off. Verse 22 through 24. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So the dad, he is sparing no expense. It is time to party. He doesn't care what, he, what the son has done wrong. He cares that he's back home where he should be. And again, there is, for the son, there is... Nothing that he could have done more to separate himself from the father. Like he, this is worst case scenario. Every step of the way, every wrong decision, he made it. But it didn't matter. His dad, his father still welcomed him back. And in the same way, that is how God feels about each and every one of us. That he is still willing to forgive and welcome us back. And that's the gospel. 
That is the truth of God's word, that even though we don't deserve it, uh, the son did nothing to deserve being brought back and welcomed like a king, but he was. In the same way, we don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve his forgiveness, but he is still willing to give us those things if we turn to him. And if we acknowledge our sin and trust that Jesus' death and resurrection is enough to pay for our sins, because it is. And that's grace. That's God giving us more than we deserve, a new identity, forgiveness, eternal life. He is calling us a child of his. And that points back to the reason that Jesus was hanging around sinners in the first place. It's because God loves them. And he waits patiently for them to return. And so that's the younger son. But this parable is about two sons. It says that when the younger son came home, the older son was in the field working hard. That he was busy working for his dad. And he's in the field and he hears music and dancing. And he's like, what is going on? He asks one of the other workers. And he says, yeah, hey, your brother's home. So uh, <laughs> your dad threw a party. They're having steak. It's a big deal. Like they're partying over there. And the son, the older brother, doesn't like it. Verse 28. It says he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you. I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never, I don't know why I find this funny. You never gave me a goat that I could celebrate with my friends. Sounds like the most spoiled kid ever. Um, but when this son of yours came who, was, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But, he, but we had to celebrate. We had to rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The brother is upset. He's going, okay, I've been here the whole time doing the right thing, and this idiot son of yours comes back for two seconds, and he's getting the red carpet. Like, what, what is the deal here? But the son that never left, the son that spent more time with the father, he didn't know what he was like. He didn't understand what the father cared about. He didn't know his heart. And that shows us that God doesn't want mindless obedience to prove ourselves. He wants a relationship with you. He wants your heart. And this older brother is saying, look, I've been slaving for years. I never disobeyed you. And he thought that's what mattered. But the problem is, for the son, God doesn't want slaves. He wants sons. God doesn't just want us to obey, to prove ourselves. God wants a son, a child committed to him. And so he's telling the older brother, look, you can't earn my love. If you are willing to be here, no matter what you do, I will care for you. I will love you. He didn't understand that the father finds joy in what is lost. And so he didn't celebrate. And I think after reading all these three stories, as Christians, as people who are in church, and we should be, we're in church every week, we can grow numb to how great things like, you know, someone being saved really is. 
that we can be content and be kind of focused on ourselves, like, okay, making sure I'm growing and I'm fed, and okay, was the service good today? How was the music? Did my family enjoy it? Great. And kind of go through our week just focused on us. And we should be growing. We should be learning from, um, from church and all these different ways, but it's easy to stay that way and not care about what God cares about and what he cares about are people who are far from him. Because God shows us, Jesus tells us that God is willing to lead the 99, go, to go find the one. That God is willing to search after us like a woman finding a, a coin in her home. And God is willing to wait patiently like a loving father waiting for us to return. And that's who he is. And if that's God's priority, it should be ours as well. The last thing that Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 before he leaves earth is, hey, you've been disciples, you've been with me, you've been following me for the past three years, everything that you know, everything that I've taught you, go. Go make disciples, go share this message, go tell others about me, reach them, teach them, baptize them, share the gospel, spread this news. And so it's not only Jesus' focus, but he's saying, no, it should be your focus as well. And that's, here at Grace, we are not perfect. I'm not perfect. No one is. There's not a perfect local church on the planet. But everything we do here, our intent is that people would come closer to God. And especially those who don't know him, who are far from him, would be brought near to have a relationship with him. And again, that's why we do everything here. Next week, we're starting a new series, Family Hacks, that we want just kind of an easy ramp for people to come to church. Hey, we all have families that are, if they're anything like mine, okay, not perfect, that I'm sure all of us can relate to. All of us can improve in our relationships and dealing with our husband or our wife or our kids or our parents. And so we're hoping that, hey, uh, grab an invite card, out on the info table or the cafe, invite them to this new series. Well, this next week, we're sending a mailer out about the series. Hopefully, that people will, yeah, come here for maybe more practical need. But ultimately, we want to point them to the source of healing. And that's Jesus. And, then, and, and so that everything we do, whether it's the Beast Feast coming up in October, we don't just want like a fun time and, and guys to be here to have a great meal. We want that to be the case, yeah, but hopefully people would be here that do not know God. And because they can have, have some food, maybe through that they come to know Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we value what God values? Because these stories tell us that he is focused on those who are far coming to a relationship. Honestly, does it bring us joy? Knowing that people are being saved. Do we celebrate when it happens? Do you share God's feelings of compassion and care for those who are sinners? Does it motivate you? Are you motivated uh, more by selfish reasons? Are we more like the older brother who is just kind of calloused and really doesn't care about, you know, lost people coming to know Christ? Or are we motivated? Does that drive us? Does that make us go out of our way to build new relationships and to share with people? And to kind of bring it full circle from um, when I started, we asked the question of what's the best thing that can happen to you and those around you? The best thing for you and those around you 
would be that people come to know Jesus. With that you, that you would be saved by grace through faith. That you and others would know Christ. Not only a knowledge of him, but you would know Christ as a child, as a son, as a daughter. Because that's what makes heaven celebrate. That's what brings God joy. And it should do the same for us. And so just, that's, that's my challenge this week. Are you actively caring for and reaching out to those who are far from God? What are you doing to make that change? What are you doing to share with them? Are you sharing your faith with people? Are you verbally telling them, hey, this is what Jesus has done for us. This is what, uh, we don't deserve it. We're all sinful, but man, God loves us so much that he paid that penalty by sending his son, Jesus. Are you sharing that? Are you inviting people to church? Are you telling them about a place where they can hear truth? Are you living in a life that um, is a good example? Like we are meant to be, yeah, we're not perfect, but we want to set the standard of what it looks like for someone to be saved by grace and to be given a new heart and a new life and a new mission. And are you praying for people that God would change their hearts and allow them to turn towards him? Because it's too easy for us to go to work every day of the week, to see our neighbors, to see people, and it's so easy to say or do nothing. But Jesus is saying, no, God cares about people that are still dead in their sin. Because that was all of us at one point. And if God cares about it, we should care about it. And that is the mission that God wants us to be a part of. And so find ways this week, and, and I know um, the fall's coming up, and um, here at Tiffin, Pastor Zach, AJ, the entire staff, they're not slowing down. <laughs> they got a lot planned, and we want you guys to be a part of it. Be a part of what God cares about, and that's people coming to know him. Let's go ahead and pray this morning as we wrap up. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for today. We thank you for allowing us to know your truth. I pray that we would understand just everything that you've done for us. God, you love us and you have sent us your son and I pray and we just thank you for the gospel most of all. But even as we reflect on Luke 15 and what Jesus has taught us, God, you show us your heart. You show us what you care about. You show us who you are and by, by extension, what we should care about and what we should focus our life on, that it's not about just ourselves, but it is about people coming to know you. It is about people who are far coming near. It's about people who are lost, being found, and their identity becoming Jesus, finding their identity in you. And God, I pray that we would help be a part of that mission, that you would allow us to be effective, that you would use grace. People here that have been saved, and they have turned to you that you would use us to impact others. And I thank you for the example. And God, help us to just be driven by that, to be motivated for a love and care for other people. And we thank you most of all for Jesus. And it, it's in his name we pray. Amen.